1: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 24 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for downloading the podcast.
1: To start things off, we wanted to let you guys know that we'll have a special announcement for you at the end of the episode. We weren't sure how many of you actually listen to us prattle on at the close of every show, so we just wanted to give you a heads-up now that after the book recommendation and whatnot, we have a special announcement later on.
0: And it's nothing bad?
1: Uh, no. In fact, it's something good, or potentially very good. But anyway, we'll get to that later.
0: So in the last show, we talked about the secession of seven slave states, in the Lower South between Abraham Lincoln's election in November 1860 and his inauguration on March fourth eighteen 1861. And obviously that time frame is important to keep in mind, since that was just the first wave of secession. After Lincoln takes office and after the bombardment and surrender of Fort Sumter, there will be another wave of secession as four more slave states withdraw from the Union. Arkansas, North Carolina, Virginia, and Tennessee. But we'll cover that second wave of secession in a future episode.
1: Also in the last show, we pointed the finger at slavery as the culprit behind the secession of those initial seven states. Specifically, we think the historical evidence clearly shows that it was the defense of the institution of slavery that was the root cause of secession. And we're aware that there are still a lot of folks today who will deny that, but really we just don't think they have a leg to stand on if you actually consider the historical background of the slavery issue. Now, those folks may argue from sentiment or emotion, but the weight of historical evidence is against them, is against their denial that the protection of slavery was the cause of secession. Now, much, much farther down the road in the podcast, when we discuss the lost cause interpretation of the war, um, we'll talk about the historical revisionism that took place during the post-war years with regard to this issue, but for now, we want to keep forging ahead. So, moving ahead, we want to spend the first part of this episode talking about whether the southern states had a right to secede. To put it plainly, the question can be laid out in this way. Was secession a constitutionally supported principle, or was secession revolutionary, illegal, and treasonous?
0: On January twenty-first, 1861, Jefferson Davis stood up one last time in the Senate chamber to announce that he had received evidence that the state of Mississippi had dissolved her fraternal bonds with the rest of the United States. And then before resigning his Senate seat, Davis laid out the basis for his home state's legal claim to withdraw from the Union. He said, quote, I have for many years advocated, as an essential attribute of state sovereignty, the right of a state to secede from the Union. End quote.
1: Jefferson Davis's position on the issue of secession was essentially reaffirming that of John C. Calhoun. And we've mentioned Calhoun on the podcast before uh, back in the day he was the powerful u s Senator from South Carolina who butted heads with President Andrew Jackson in an eighteen thirty three speech defending the right of South Carolina to nullify federal tariffs it perceived as unfair. Calhoun insisted quote, "I go on the ground that the Constitution was made by the states that it is a federal union of the states." in which the several states still retain their sovereignty, end quote. So really, Jefferson Davis was extending the logic of Calhoun's argument by asserting that the Constitution was basically a contract between sovereign states, with the contracting parties, that is the states, retaining the inherent authority to withdraw from the agreement when violations of it rendered it void and the states would determine what constituted a violation of the contract. Well, that's one side of the argument.
0: For the other side of the argument, we'll look to Abraham Lincoln's inauguration on March 4, 1861. By the time he raised his hand to take the oath of office, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas had already withdrawn from the Union and a sense of impending calamity hung in the air. But still, in his first inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln left no doubt about his view of secession. Lincoln declared, "...no state, upon its mere motions, can lawfully get out of the Union." that resolves and ordinances to that effect are legally void, and that acts of violence within any state or states against the authority of the United States are insurrectionary or revolutionary according to circumstances, End quote.
1: Abraham Lincoln's argument was that America was a unified nation in which the individual states had merged their sovereign rights and identities forever, and therefore no state had the right to withdraw from this permanent union. In a 4th of July message to a special session of Congress in 1861, Lincoln brilliantly framed the issue by arguing that the union is older than any of the states, that the Declaration of Independence transformed the United Colonies into United States, and so apart from that union, there wouldn't even be any such thing as states, and so therefore no state possessed the sovereign power to withdraw from the union that created the state in the first place. Does that make sense? Well, essentially, when Abraham Lincoln took the presidential oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, he considered himself bound to preserve the union that was the physical creation of the Declaration of Independence and the central subject of the Constitution. In that fourth of July speech in eighteen sixty one, he declared, quote, Our states have neither more nor less power than that reserved to them in the Union by the Constitution, no one of them ever having been a state out of the Union. End quote. In that speech, Abraham Lincoln went on to say, quote, our popular government has often been called an experiment Two points in it are people have already settled the successful establishing and the successful administering of it. One still remains its successful maintenance against a formidable internal attempt to overthrow it. It is now for them to demonstrate to the world that those who can fairly carry an election can also suppress a rebellion. So, in framing the issue in that address to Congress. President Lincoln characterized secession as nothing less than an attack on the very notion of democracy. Now, while Abraham Lincoln denied the southern states had a right to secede from the Union, no one, not Lincoln, not anyone north or south, denied the right of revolution. After all, the United States was a country born out of a revolution. And a few Southerners were perfectly willing to allow that secession was revolution. But most Southern leaders didn't want to be branded as revolutionaries. They wanted to claim constitutional legitimacy for separation from the Union.
0: The only problem for those who wanted to claim that secession was a legitimate, constitutionally supported principle is that the right to secede isn't found anywhere in the Constitution. Rather, it had to be inferred from contractual theories of government.
1: Okay, so remember how in the last show we talked about secession being triggered by the election of Abraham Lincoln, the Republican candidate for president? Well, to me, basically, with Lincoln's election, the South saw the handwriting on the wall. They saw that political power on the national level was beginning to slip out of their hands. And since the game was starting to go against them... Rather than keep playing, they decided they were going to quit in a huff and go home and take their ball with them. And now they wanted to say that, hey, we're not being huge jerks because it's okay for us to quit in a huff because the Constitution gives us the right to do that.
0: Really? A sports analogy?
1: Well, sure. It fits. I mean, if you consider that during 49 of the previous 72 years, from 1789 to 1861, a Southerner and slave owner was President of the United States, and during that time, two-thirds of the Speakers of the House and Presidents Pro Tem of the Senate were also Southerners, and at all times during those years, a majority of Supreme Court justices were Southerners, and that all happened, even though Southerners were a minority of the American population, because they dominated the political party that usually controlled the national government. And during the 1850s, Southern domination of the Democratic Party tightened, so that even though both presidents during that time, Democratic presidents, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, they were Northerners, but they were indebted to Southern Democrats for their election. And so Pierce and Buchanan were known as doe-faces, that is, Northern politicians, who did the bidding of Southerners. Well, anyway, the point is, up until the Civil War, the South had had a pretty good run controlling the national government, and they'd used the Democratic Party as an instrument to protect slavery and push for slavery's expansion in a new territory. But, with the presidential election of 1860, with Republican political power on the rise— the game was clearly starting to go against them. And so, because Southern leaders believed slavery would be better protected outside the Union than inside it, rather than wait for four more years for the next election to try their hand at defeating the Republicans, which is what you do in a democracy, rather than that, during the secession winter of 1860-1861, the states of the Lower South decided they were going to quit the game and go home, and take their ball with them. I see. And, I mean, it's important to stress that the initial wave of secession with those first seven states took place before Lincoln came into office. So those states decided to withdraw from the Union, even though Lincoln had not yet done the South any harm. And even after Lincoln took office as president, he was pretty much powerless to do the South any real harm. Remember, Abraham Lincoln had already stated that he and the Republicans had no constitutional power to touch slavery where it already existed. And even after his election as president, the Democrats still held power in Congress, and Southerners still dominated the Supreme Court. So it's kind of difficult to see what immediate threat the slave states saw in Lincoln's election. Really, to a large extent, What happened during the secession winter of 1860-1861 has almost nothing to do with the legality or constitutionality of secession. It's simply that the secessionists saw Lincoln's election as the final straw in a long list of perceived northern insults and aggression against the South. They thought the future of slavery was in mortal danger and so they were bound and determined to push secession and then form a southern nation with the institution of slavery as its cornerstone. Remember, that's why a few of them had set out in 1860 to break up the Democratic Party. They knew that a Republican victory in the presidential election would make it that much easier for them to achieve their ultimate goal, which was separation from the United States. Well, anyway... Um, in that message to Congress on July 4th, 1861, Abraham Lincoln referred to this attempt to justify secession as a constitutional principle, and he dismissed it as, quote, rebellion, thus sugarcoated." end quote. Well, sorry, I know I'm pretty wound up, but this is just really fascinating stuff.
0: It is. But to get back to the matter immediately at hand, whether the South had a right to secede from the Union, we don't want to have to get into the more technical details of each side of the legal argument, so we'll just say that we happen to think Abraham Lincoln had the more convincing argument, but that it's unclear which side would have won in an objective court of law in 1861. As it was, of course, from 1861 to 1865, the question of secession was decided on the field of battle, and there the South ultimately lost. In speaking of the field of battle, we'll give the final word in this section of the show to Robert E. Lee. In January 1861, when Lee was still a colonel in the U.S. Army, he said, quote, "'Secession is nothing but revolution.' The framers of our Constitution never exhausted so much labor, wisdom, and forbearance in its formation, and surrounded it with so many guards and securities if it was intended to be broken by every member of the Confederacy at will. Lee did, however, in light of the ongoing crisis, go on to say that, a union that can only be maintained by swords and bayonets, and in which strife and civil war are to take the place of brotherly love and kindness has no charm for me. End quote.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war while also being a great jumping on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939 and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War
1: we want to switch gears now just a bit and spend the second portion of this episode talking about a, a kind of unique historical window that allows us to peer into the mindset of the secessionists who are behind the drive for disunion after Abraham Lincoln's election. And we can do this because in late 1860 and early 1861, five states of the Lower South, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia, and Louisiana, appointed commissioners to other slave states, and gave them the mission of spreading the secessionist message. Professor Charles B. Dew, author of the book Apostles of Disunion, says, quote, these commissioners often explained in detail why their states were exiting the union, and they did everything in their power to persuade laggard slave states to join the secessionist cause. From December 1860 to April 1861, they carried the gospel of disunion to the far corners of the South." End quote.
0: Most of these commissioners came from the four deep South states of Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, and Georgia. Mississippi and Alabama named commissioners to every one of the 14 other slave states. All told, some 52 men served as secession commissioners in the critical months leading up to the outbreak of hostilities. Some of them were relatively obscure figures, lawyers, doctors, or planters, while others were better known, ex-governors, or members of Congress. But all possessed a reputation for persuasive oratory, and all carried the potent and emotional message that the Republican victory heralded impending doom for the South, especially with regard to the institution of slavery.
1: During his research for Apostles of Disunion, Professor Dew examined dozens of the commissioners' speeches or public letters, and he found them to be, quote, a truly remarkable set of documents. What is most striking about them is their amazing openness and frankness. The commissioners' words convey an unmistakable impression of candor, of white southerners talking to fellow southerners with no need to hold back out of deference to outside sensibilities. These men infused their speeches and letters with emotion, with passion, and with a powerful let's-cut-to-the-chase analysis that reveals, better than any other sources I know, what was really driving the deep South states toward disunion."
0: Mississippi and South Carolina already had commissioners traveling as ambassadors to other slave states to promote secession even before they withdrew from the Union themselves. On November 26, 1860, less than three weeks after Abraham Lincoln's election, Governor John J. Pettis of Mississippi delivered a message to his state legislature in which he made clear that Mississippi had no intention of submitting to the rule of black Republicans.
1: And just in case we haven't made it clear before, the term black Republicans was used not to refer to African Americans who belonged to the Republican Party, But it was actually a derogatory term used by Northern and Southern Democrats to smear Republicans by emphasizing that Republicans supposedly wanted complete social and political equality between whites and blacks, which was actually untrue for most Republicans. But anyway.
0: But anyway, Governor Pettis recommended that Mississippi appoint commissioners authorized to carry the secessionist message to other slave states. And so, four days later, on November 30th, the legislature authorized Pettus to appoint commissioners to every slaveholding state.
1: Mississippi's commissioner to Georgia, Judge William L. Harris, spoke to a joint session of the Georgia General Assembly on December 17, 1860. And Harris began his address, as many of the commissioners would do, by reviewing the supposed northern outrages committed against the South such as the North's failure, quote, to yield to us our constitutional rights in relation to slave property, end quote. Harris said that the Republican victory in the recent election revealed a North, quote, more defiant and more intolerant than ever before. They have demanded, and now demand, equality between the white and Negro races, under our Constitution, equality in representation, equality in the right of suffrage, equality in the social circle, equality in the rights of matrimony, end quote.
0: Harris declared that the incoming Republican administration guaranteed, quote, freedom to the slave, but eternal degradation for you and for us, end quote. The heart of Harris's argument was the Republican threat to the South's maintenance of white supremacy. He said, quote, our fathers made this a government for the white man, rejecting the negro as an ignorant inferior barbarian race incapable of self-government and not therefore entitled to be associated with the white man upon terms of civil political or social equality. End quote. Judge Harris then told the Georgians that Abraham Lincoln's administration was resolved quote, to overturn and strike down this great feature of our union, and to substitute in its stead their new theory of the universal equality of the black and white races, end quote.
1: Harris closed his address to the Georgia Assembly with an amazing declaration. He said, quote, Sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish, the part of Mississippi is chosen. She will never submit to the principles and policy of this black Republican administration. She had rather see the last of her race men women and children immolated in one common common funeral pyre than see them subjected to the degradation of civil political and social equality with the negro race." End quote.
0: After Harris's address the Georgia House and Senate approved a joint resolution roundly condemning the people of the north for supporting the Republican Party which is, was a political party." Quote, organized for the avowed purpose of destroying the institution of slavery and consequently spreading ruin and desolation among the people in every portion of the states where it exists, End quote. The Georgians also ordered the printing of thousands of copies of Harris's speech.
1: We wanted to relay the gist of Judge Harris's speech in some detail because, as Professor Dew points out, The racial themes that formed the heart of Harris's argument for secession would be echoed by the other commissioners as they spread out across the South during the secession winter of 1860-1861. For example, Stephen Fowler Hale, Alabama's commissioner to the border state of Kentucky, told Kentucky's governor that Abraham Lincoln's election was, quote, the last and crowning insult and outrage upon the people of the South, end quote. And Hale said that this insult and outrage stemmed from the fact that the Republican Party stood for, quote, one dogma, the equality of the races, white and black, end quote.
0: Hale declared that Lincoln's election was, quote, nothing less than an open declaration of war, for the triumph of this new theory of government destroys the property of the South, lays waste her fields, and inaugurates all the horrors of servile Insurrection, consigning her citizens to assassinations and her wives and daughters to pollution and violation to gratify the lust of half-civilized Africans. The slaveholder and non-slaveholder must ultimately share the same fate, all be degraded to a position of equality with free negroes, stand side by side with them at the polls, and fraternize in all the social relations of life or else there will be an eternal war of races, desolating the land with blood and utterly wasting all the resources of the country. End quote.
1: The dire warnings of Harris and Hale were repeated by other commissioners in those critical weeks in late 1860 and early 1861 when the fate of the Union was hanging in the balance. For example, Alabama's commissioner to Maryland told that state's governor that secession meant, quote, deliverance from abolition domination.
0: Alabama's commissioner to Missouri referenced a massive and bloody slave revolt against the French in the Caribbean when he warned Missouri state legislature that, quote, under the policy of the Republican Party, the time would arrive when the scenes of San Domingo and Haiti, with all their attendant horrors, would be reenacted in the slaveholding states.
1: And Commissioner Arthur Francis Hopkins, former Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, addressed the Virginia General Assembly and predicted that a federal court system corrupted by Republican policy would, quote, discharge every slave brought before it and establish them as free men and equals in our own land.
0: Over and over again, the secession commissioners painted the picture of a brutal, fanatical Republican Party humbling and degrading the South by threatening the maintenance of white supremacy. After describing that frightening future, the commissioners declared that only through immediate secession could the South protect and preserve its racially-based social and economic system of white privilege.
1: Professor Dew offers an, an apt summary of this fascinating if troubling, glimpse into the mindset of secessionists when he points out that, quote, in setting out to explain secession to their fellow southerners, the commissioners have explained a very great deal to us as well. By illuminating so clearly the racial content of the secession persuasion, the commissioners would seem to have laid to rest, once and for all, any notion that slavery had nothing to do with the coming of the Civil War. To put it quite simply, slavery and race were absolutely critical elements in the coming of the war. Present-day Americans need only read the speeches and letters of the secession commissioners to learn what was really driving the Deep South to the brink of war in 1860-1861.
0: End quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Apostles of Disunion, Southern Secession Commissioners and the Causes of the Civil War by Charles Dew.
1: So it was probably pretty obvious we based the second half of this episode almost entirely on Dew's book, and so we really can't recommend it highly enough. In the introduction, he talks about the fact that he found Apostles of Disunion to be a difficult and painful book to write. Because he's a Southerner born and raised, and his ancestors fought for the Confederacy, and he grew up being told that the South had seceded for one reason, and one reason only, the defense of states' rights. And Dew recalls how stunned he was to come across the evidence that slavery and racism and white supremacy formed the basis of the secessionist cause, as shown in the messages the secession commissioners carried across the South in late 1860 and early 1861. So anyway, Tracy and I think that Apostles of Disunion uh, carries within it an eye-opening and important message and that it deserves to be on every Civil War buff's bookshelf.
0: As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And now...
1: Well, actually... Before the special announcement, I just wanted to let you guys know what the next couple or several regular episodes of the podcast will look like as we're getting closer and closer to the outbreak of hostilities. Uh, So next time, we'll take a look at the formation of the government of the Confederate States of America down in Montgomery, Alabama in February 1861, and then we'll devote an episode to Jefferson Davis and bring his life up to speed with his appointment as president of the CSA. And then after that, we'll circle back around to what all was going on up north after the election um, with Abraham Lincoln and with poor James Buchanan and Congress in the nation's capital while the country was falling apart during the secession winter of 1860-1861. And after that, we'll finally get to the bombardment of Fort Sumter. Okay. And now...
0: For the special announcement.
1: um, So you know that from time to time, we ask you guys to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes if you enjoy the podcast. And we really appreciate those of you who have taken the time to do that already. But we think a lot of you so far uh, have passed up the opportunity to help us out in that way so we have a deal we'd like to offer you guys. Uh, We're releasing this episode that you're listening to on Saturday, May 11th. If, in one week's time, that is by next Sunday, May 19th, you guys go to either the U.S. or U.K. iTunes, and between the two sites, if you leave us 50 new 5-star ratings or reviews, then on Monday, May 20th, we'll release a special bonus episode for your listening enjoyment. And this is an episode we already have pretty much ready to go. It's on life in 1860 America. But for us to release it, to unlock it for you guys, you need to go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating or review.
0: What's the difference between a rating and a review?
1: Well, if you're on the podcast page on iTunes, you can click where it says Ratings and Reviews, and then with one more click, you can simply give the show a five-star rating. Easy. For a five-star review, you do the same thing, but you also take a minute or two to write a review, just to write a sentence or two or three about how much you enjoy the show.
0: Basically, we're asking you to do this because it helps other people find the podcast on iTunes.
1: Yeah, the um, the method iTunes uses to rank podcasts is a bit mysterious. But it does seem to revolve around number of downloads, the number of five-star ratings and reviews, and the number of people who subscribe to the podcast.
0: Does it cost anything to subscribe?
1: No. Um, When you subscribe to a podcast on iTunes, it's free. You're really just saying, hey, I really like this podcast, and I want my computer or whatever to download each new episode as soon as it comes up on iTunes. In other words, if you subscribe to the show, you don't actually need to go looking to see if a new episode is up. If a new episode has been posted, then the very next time you're on iTunes, the new episode starts to download automatically, like magic.
0: So anyway, if y'all also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, that's great, but not part of the deal. The deal is this. We're releasing this episode on Saturday, May 11th, by next Sunday, May 19th, go to either the U.S. or U.K. iTunes, and between the two sites, if y'all leave us 50 new five-star ratings or reviews, then on Monday, May 20th, we'll release a special bonus episode of the podcast.
1: Yep. So there you go. That's the deal. And we'll see what happens, I guess.
0: Okay. So thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.